All right, we're continuing with the uh, series here. Okay. So, we're continuing along with this part two in the series of being a man, following along the life of Abraham. This is a follow-up to the seven-part series that we did, the seven traits of being a man. And the seven traits of being a man we went through, and what we're doing is now going through the life of Abraham to show literally someone who embodied that idea throughout his entire life, and the stories that kind of give us a deeper insight and kind of give us a little bit more of a clarity on what it really means to be a man. And tonight we're actually going to see, last week we spoke about the idea of there's no such thing as quitting. You never quit. There's no such thing as quitting. No matter what, even if you think you've exhausted all possibilities, yeah, try something else. That was the idea that we spoke about last week. And the week before we spoke about the idea of just having clarity and conviction. That the essence of being a man is to have conviction. To starting. That's the starting point. That's the starting point of all of life, is to have conviction, to have clarity and understanding of what it is that a person wants to accomplish, and what is important and what is valuable. Now we gave a definition in the first series as to the definition of a man, and tonight's story is actually going to give us a little bit of an insight into where that comes from. Who remembers the definition of a man? Yep, someone who takes responsibility and does everything within his power to see that it gets done. However, we said that's the definition of a man, but we took it one step further and we said that the concept of a Jewish essence, the Jewish understanding of what it means to be a man, is not just to take responsibility, but to take responsibility for the world. That's the Jewish understanding of what it means to be a man, is to take responsibility for the world. Tonight's story is actually going to give us an allusion to that. So with that, we're on page 79. As I mentioned last week, we're obviously not going to be reading line by line the story of Abraham's life. There's too much, there's too many things to talk about, and there's too many instances in which the, we could spend days on, literally lines. So we started out with the story and we spoke about Abraham was told to leave. He was told to leave his homeland and go to a land that I would promise, God said. And we spoke about that and when he got there, we then learned that he got there, there was a famine. We didn't read this, but I shared this with you last week. He gets there, there's a huge famine in the land. He leaves and he goes down to Egypt Things don't go so well there in Egypt with his wife. There's a little incident there. But when he leaves Egypt, he leaves a fabulously wealthy man. And when he leaves Egypt, because of this wealth, there becomes a conflict of interest and there becomes a struggle between Abraham and his nephew. His nephew is kidnapped in a world war. And Abraham comes to rescue him during that world war. That's where we got up to last week. Events continued after last week, events continued, and after this world war, Abraham goes back, he goes back to 
where he was living, and he ends up being told to give himself the bris milah. We're not going to be doing that story. We skip, we're skipping over that. But he's given the mitzvah bris milah. He's told to change his name. Up until that point, his name was only Avram. He's told to change his name to Abraham. His wife Sarah becomes Sarah. And we're picking up right after the bris milah. That's what happened after that world war. Abraham and Lot separate again, and God comes and tells him to give himself circumcision. Now, Abraham is an old man at this point. Can you imagine? I mean, I can tell you from uh, first-hand knowledge of being involved in that particular field that once a child reaches a certain age, this is a child, circumcision is surgery, let alone a grown man. Abraham is a grown man when he circumcises himself. So, this story is taking place literally right after that, in the days following the circumcision. No, no, we're days after. Okay. We're two or three days after. <laughs> Actually, three days after. So, chapter 18. Hashem appeared to him in the plains of Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance of the tent in the heat of the day. He lifted his eyes, and he sees, behold, three men standing over him. He perceives, he runs towards them from the entrance of the tent, and he bows down to the ground, and he says, My Lord, if I find favor in your eyes, please pass not away from your servant. Let some water be brought and wash your feet. Recline beneath the tree. I'll fetch a little bread for you that you may sustain yourselves. Then go, inasmuch as you passed your servant's way. And they said, Do just as you have said. And Abraham hastened to the tent of Sarah, and he said, Hurry, three says of meal, fine flour, knead, make cakes. Then Abraham ran to the cattle, he takes a calf, tender and good, and he gives it to the youth who hurried to prepare it. He took cream and milk and the calf which he had prepared, and he placed these before them, those three men. He stood over them beneath the tree and they ate. He doesn't even eat, he's standing over them. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, Behold, she's in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were old, well on in the years, and the manner of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. And Sarah laughed, saying, After I've withered, shall I again have delicate skin? My husband is old. And Hashem said to Abraham, Why is it that Sarah laughed? saying, Shall I in truth bear a child till I have aged? Is anything beyond Hashem? At the appointed time I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was frightened. But he said, No, you did laugh. And then the men get up from there and gaze down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked with them to escort them. We're going to pause in the story for right now, before we go on. Yeah, now the story is quite bizarre. The story is quite, quite bizarre. We don't have time this evening to really go through the details of every single line, but every single line has got worlds of explanation and there's tremendous depth. But just to suffice it, let's just quickly go through what we read. Not read it again, but just to speak out again what we read. I said to you that this story is taking place right after the circumcision. And it says that it was hot. It was very, very hot. 
Now, we did not speak about this, but Abraham's, Abraham's quintessential character trait was hospitality. Abraham would always go out of his way to set up his tent at the crossroads between two towns. He would never go and build his house in the town itself. He would always go and literally live out on the out on the tent out there you know, between between here and uh, you know Palm Springs. He'd set up tent so literally that where the tent and the fifteen meet. So where the crossroads are, there'd be constantly people traveling, and he'd be able to invite people into his tent. So that was Abraham did, but here he's just circumcised himself. So the Torah says it was super super hot. God had made it super hot so that no people would be walking the streets. So Abraham wouldn't be doing what he normally loves to do. He wouldn't be taking care of guests. And he'd take care of himself. He would be able to sit and rest and relax. But this caused Abraham tremendous, agmas nefesh we say in Hebrew, tremendous sadness, because he wasn't able to do hospitality. And he was sitting there at the porch waiting for people. Where are they? Where are people? Where are people? So literally God comes to visit him. God comes to visit him. He doesn't know that. No. Hashem appeared to him in the plains of Mumre. Hashem appears to him. Then it says, you're thinking the three men. No, that's uh, next. So first God comes to visit him. And then these three men come. Now he doesn't know that these three men are angels. He thinks they're three men. And he goes to prepare them a meal. Now imagine the scene. Imagine that every time I teach you guys Torah, I always tell you the same thing. Make the story real. Imagine the scene here. Imagine the presidential elections coming up and the presidential candidate or the president himself is running for re-election. And he's on the campaign trail and he comes to your city. And he's speaking out on a public forum. He's speaking out, you know, out in, in Century City. He's speaking out on the pavilion. And uh, you're going to go hear him? Maybe, maybe not. But, you know, you find out that literally everyone's going to get a chance to shake his hand afterwards. You might go. Imagine if you get a phone call from the Public Relations Department of the White House saying the president's going to be coming to your city. He'd like to come and sit down in your living room and have a talk with you. He heard that you're an important person in the community, and he'd like to come have some words with you. He'd like to just come and ask you a few questions, hear what you have to say. You're going to say no? The president's offering to come to your house? <laughs> of course, the president's coming. So what are you going to do? You're going to take out your iPhone. You're going to take out your Palm Pot. You're going to take out, you're going to clear your day. The president... Well, what time is he coming? I'm sorry, we can't give you a time. We can give you a window. Right? It's like the, the Sears delivery, right? You get a window, a five-hour window when the president's coming. So you clear the day. The president's coming. Imagine the president shows up. And you bring him into your house. You sit down in the living room. There's secret service everywhere. You sit down in the living room. And the president is about to speak to you. And an old friend of yours. Your buddy calls you on the cell phone. What do you do? Do you answer it? You don't answer it. The President of the United States is sitting in your living room. Your friend's calling you on the cell phone. You don't even look at it. <laughs> You're not answering it. Someone knocks on the door. You're not answering the door because it's the President. Trust me, Secret Service is answering the door. Secret Service answers the door. It's three homeless people. 
coming to collect some stucca. They come into you, they say, you know, after they check them out, they check that they're not terrorists, you know, they frisk them, they got not, They come in, because it's your home still, and they tell you, there's some three homeless people at the front door, what would you like us to tell them? What do you tell them? Get lost. No, no. No, no, sitting with the president. Instead, instead of saying that, what you do is you turn to the president and you say, excuse me, Mr. President, I'll, I'll be right back. And you get up and you go to the front door and you say to the homeless people, please come in, please come in, come in, come in, come in, come in. And they see the secret service. No, it's okay, it's okay, don't worry. Come, we're going to go into the kitchen. You can't, in the living room, the president's in there. Come on, let's go in the kitchen. And you sit them down in the kitchen. Can I get you something to eat? Can I make you a lunch? Can I make you dinner? What would you like? Oh, what would you like? You'd like some pizza? I'll be right back. And you run to the pizza store to get some pizza. And you come back and you give them some pizza. What else can I get you? Can I get you a drink? You run to the... They don't have the drink you want, so you run over to Ralph's to get them the drink you want. You come back. Meanwhile, who's still in your living room? The president, still sitting there. <laughs> you run back with the drink and you're standing there. You're making sure they eat. They've drank. They're okay. All right, everyone's happy? Okay, good. Thank you so much for blessing my home with you coming in so I could give you some hospitality. And then you see them on the way and then you go back to the president. Is the president still sitting in your living room? No. He's gone. He's gone. Abraham is visited by God. <laughs> Forget the president. Abram is visited by God. Hashem appears to him in the plains of Mamre. God comes to visit Abraham to comfort him. He's, he wanted to do Beaker Cholim, we said. Abraham is sick. He just circumcised himself. And God comes to visit him. And right before God even speaks, Abraham sees what he perceives to be three homeless people, three Bedouins walking through the desert. And he literally gets up and he runs to them. And he begs them to come into his tent. And then he goes out of his way to make each one of them a gourmet meal. I mean, you heard this. Look at three saws of flying flour, knead, baked cakes. They started from scratch here. He made them a gourmet meal. And he serves them. He didn't even eat with them. He stood above them serving them. And then, after it's all said and done, the men get up and leave. Now turn back to where we were. Now the men are leaving. And Hashem said, Shall I conceal from Abraham what I do, now that Abraham is surely to become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by him? For I have loved him, because he commands his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of Hashem, doing charity and justice. So Hashem says, and now, Hashem's thinking, i got to start up a conversation. And the men had turned from there, and went to Sodom while Abraham was still standing before Hashem. The men finally leave, and there's Hashem waiting there for Abraham. What a bizarre scene. Every single one of you agreed. If the president came to your house, you would not interrupt that for anything. God comes to visit Abraham. He sees three men who he perceives to be Bedouins walking through the desert. He gets up, he runs to them, he feeds them, he takes care of them, he escorts them on the way, and the Torah says in the entire time, who's still waiting at his doorstep? Hashem. That's bizarre. 
If you had to think, if you had to surmise, what would you think, before we get into the story, would be the ultimate experience in this world? The ultimate experience in this world. Even from a religious perspective, get religious. You know I usually say don't get religious. If you get religious, what would be the ultimate experience in this world? Jumping out of an airplane? Or sitting on a porch talking face to face with God? Could there be anything more ultimate than that? The greatest experience a human being could possibly imagine, if it could be done, if it could be done, every single one of us is searching for that ultimate experience. Well, here you go. I got a door right here. You walk in that door, you got 15 minutes alone with God. Could there be anything more amazing than that? Nothing. And that's what Abraham had, and he said, no, 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 excuse me, I'll be right back. Unless there is something more amazing than experiencing God. And you know what that is? You know what's more amazing than experiencing God? Doing His will. Becoming like Him. Not doing His will. Becoming like Him. And more amazing experience, a greater pleasure, a greater pleasure than sitting there and basking in Hashem's glory, so to say. Experiencing that divine presence. Yeah, that's got to be a high that cannot compare to anything else. But there's a greater feeling. And that is becoming like Him. Abraham is being visited by God. And he sees three homeless people walking through the desert. And you know what he says to himself? Talk to God? I can do that anytime. <laughs> I can do that anytime. But to be like God? To go and actually experience this world through the eyes of Hashem? To actually be like Him? Here's an opportunity that will come and go. You hear that? That's an amazing experience. Abraham says, I could sit here and experience God any moment. But to go and become like Him, that is even a greater experience. And where do we see that? Look at this. Look at line 17. What does it mean to become like God? Now we'll see, what does it mean to be like God? Look at line 17. Can you imagine, you have to make this real. Is God, think of this something that you would think God would say. And Hashem said, shall I conceal from Abraham what I do? Paraphrase that in your own words. Shall I keep from Abraham? Yeah. Shall I keep it a secret? Should I keep it a secret? Why not? Why not keep it a secret? The fact that they were the actual angels? No. Shall I conceal from Abraham what I do now that Abraham is surely to become a great and mighty nation? What is it that he's going to keep him? All the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by him. Look at line 20. So Hashem said, Because the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah has become great, because their sin has become grave, I will descend and see if they act in accordance with this outcry. Destruction. I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to destroy these two cities. And God says, can I keep that a secret from Abraham? I.e., I have to tell Abraham. God puts himself on the I have to tell Abraham? I'm God. <laughs> Do I have to, you know, like, 
I'm God. I have to tell Abraham? You know, I'm going to sell my car next week. Do I feel compelled to tell any of you that? I'm not selling my car. Just say, let's say I choose to sell my car next week. Do I need to pick, pick up the phone and call you and say, Jason, do you mind if I sell my car next week? Before I choose to sell my car, am I sitting there tormenting myself? You know, maybe I should call Jason and tell him I'm going to sell my car. I mean, I can't, I, I can't just sell my car without letting Jason know. How can I sell my car? i got to tell Jason. Look what God says. Shall I conceal from Abraham what I'm going to do? I.e., I have to tell Abraham. Why does God have to tell Abraham anything? Why does God have to tell Abraham anything? Well, what if it wasn't my car that I was selling? <clears throat> what if Jason and I owned the car together? Could I sell it without conferring with you? No. No. If I own that car with Jason, there's no way that I could sell that car without conferring with you. God says, can I conceal what I'm going to do to the world without telling Abraham? Why does God have to tell Abraham anything? Because you know what Abraham has done? Abraham has taken responsibility for the world. Abraham's taking responsibility for the world. It's not God's anymore. It's Abraham's. It's now Abraham's. And God can't just come and destroy it without speaking to Abraham first. And the famous story goes on. Look at this. Follow along. We won't read every single line. Look at line 23. And Abraham came forward and said, Will you also stamp out the righteous along with the wicked? What if there should be 50 righteous people in the middle of the city? Would you still stamp it out rather than spare the place for the sake of the 50? It would be sacrilege for you to do such a thing, to bring death upon the righteous along with the wicked. The righteous will be like the wicked. That would be sacrilege to you. The judge of all earth should not do justice. Can't be. There has to be justice. You can't just wipe out that city with the righteous people there. And Hashem says, if I find in this Sodom 50 righteous, then I would spare the entire place. Abraham responded and said, Behold now, I desire to speak to my Lord, although I am but dust and ash. What if the 50 righteous should lack five? Amazing. We don't have time to go into this, but there's a little trickery of the words that Abraham does here. Right? You see what he does. He says, what if the 50 would lack five? Would you destroy the entire city because of five? Five people we're talking. No, is that really what is being said? Watch what God says back. No, God says, I will not destroy if I find there 45. We're not talking about a lack of five, Abraham. Don't play with words. <laughs> you asked for 50. I said, I won't destroy for 50. Ask for 45. Don't talk about, well, it's a lack of five. I mean, we're talking five people. <laughs> no, it's 45. But if 45, I won't destroy it. He further continued to speak, and he said, what if 40 would be found there? You notice Abraham doesn't do that again. And he says, I will not act on the account of 40. And he said, let not my Lord be angry. I will speak, what if 30? And he says, I won't act if there's 30. And he said, behold, now I desire to speak to my Lord. What if 20? And he says, I won't destroy it for 20. 
Let him not be angry, but I'm going to speak one more time. What if ten would be there? And he says, I won't destroy it on the account of ten. And Hashem departed when he finished speaking to Abraham. Can you imagine what chutzpah this must have taken? God comes and says, I'm destroying these two cities. And what does Abraham immediately say? What does he say? You can't commit injustice. You can't do that, God. Can you imagine? Imagine saying that to your own parents when you were a kid. It was like the first time you said that to your parents. It was like, <laughs> the first time you said no. You're like, what, what happened? <laughs> the parent didn't do anything. Oh, now I can say no all the time. <laughs> you imagine saying that to God? You can't do that, God, he says. You see what Abraham's saying? God, this isn't your world. This isn't just yours. You can't do that. You have to abide by the rules. You have to abide by the rules. You can't do that. This is not just your world anymore. It's my world too. Abraham stood up and took responsibility for the world. He said, you can't do it. And look what happened. God agreed. You see that? God agreed. Abraham says, you can't do that. Now, by the way, if Abraham had kept quiet and just said, you can't do that, you know what would have happened? The world, Sodom and Gomorrah, would not have been destroyed. Abraham made a mistake. He then clarified. He says, what if there were 50? Oh, there's 50. Okay, if there's 50. Abraham should have just said, you can't do that. It's not justice. You had a question. Just a little side question. Um, is this, from the story, is this where we get the original concept that the Torah um, is not in heaven? Yeah. This is, is not a what? The Torah is not in heaven. Well, I mean, the Torah actually says that, but this is a, this is a manifestation of that. Abraham comes along and says, you can't do that. You're not allowed. I don't let you. You imagine saying that to God? What chutzpah that must have taken? Unless you have what? Total conviction that that's what you're supposed to do. Abraham stands up and he says, you know what? Pleasure? You're right. This world is about pleasure. My own self-extential experience of this world and pleasure? The ultimate heights. But there's a greater pleasure. And that greater pleasure is to be like God. And the manifestation of being like God is taking responsibility for the world. And that's what Abraham did. Abraham sits on a porch and God comes to him to visit him. And Abraham says, wonderful. God, wait a minute. I'll be right back. You want to wait? Great. You don't want to wait? Oh, well. Because I'm not here to just self-indulge myself with your experience. I'm here to take responsibility. And there are three people there that need to eat. And Abraham says, goodbye. And he goes to take care of them. 
now that I'm done taking care of them, well, of course I'll speak to God. <laughs> you know, it's like the scene from Arthur. Everyone see the movie Arthur? Um, it's, my movies are dated, you'll forgive me. But Arthur is a great movie. If you didn't see it, it's a, a, a wasted analogy, except for someone who might listen who saw the movie. Arthur passes up a fortune. He's, a, he's one of the richest people in Manhattan. And he passes up a fortune because he goes out with this, you know, white trash was, you know at, at the time it was literally white trash and uh, the end of the movie is it all comes together the end of the movie the grandmother the matriarch of the family threatens to cut him off and this that the other and then finally she calls him over and you don't, you hear quiet you don't hear what they talk about and he comes back and he gets in the car this is after he's been told you're cut off and he's like okay fine I'll cut off <laughs> and he leaves with the home the, you know with the white trash and then and the matriarch comes and calls him over, and he goes over, and he comes back, and the woman says, well, what? And he says, she invited us over for lunch. And I said, no. And there's a moment of silence. I, I told her, we're having our tuna fish sandwiches in the park. And there's a moment of silence. He says, but I took the money. <laughs> I'm not stupid. <laughs> I took the money. So Abraham says, God, I'm leaving. I got to go do what I'm supposed to do. When I come back, of course, I'll talk to God. I'm not stupid. I'm not like, you know, tag with God. But if it means God's not going to wait, oh well. Because my pleasure is not a self-indulgent. My pleasure is taking responsibility. And that's why you actually see that the more responsibility a person takes on, the greater the pleasure it is. The greater the pleasure, the more responsibility. And that's why, huh? I have trouble with that. For the more responsibility, the greater the pleasure. That's right. Only if you could handle that, though. If you, okay, if, if, you can't, if you can't handle it, then you're not taking on responsibility. You're floundering. You're... you're that's not taking on responsibility. You see this, by the way, you see this, that whenever we say Mazel Tov, whenever we say Mazel Tov, you know, it's always a moment of responsibility, an increase in responsibility. Think about it. The entire cycle of life, we say Mazel Tov, is when there's a new responsibility that has been taken on. You have a child, Mazel Tov. <laughs> now you become responsible for human being. That child grows up, becomes bar mitzvah. What do we say? Mazel tov. What's a bar mitzvah? You've now become responsible for your actions. Grows up a little more, he gets married. What do we say? Mazel tov. You took on a spouse. Now you're responsible for a spouse. Every situation of mazel tov is always an increase of responsibility. When a person takes on more responsibility, they're taking on a higher level of joy. Now, that can be, at the same token, that greater level of joy can also come with a tremendous sense of sorrow if a person doesn't live up to his responsibilities, if a person can't handle his responsibilities. There's no difference between that and between a child that can't handle getting married and a child that can't handle his own maturity of being a bar mitzvah. Just because you have more responsibility doesn't guarantee joy. But the greater the responsibility, the greater element of joy that is available to that person. Potential. Potential. Absolutely. 
So Abraham says, sit here on the porch? No. I want the ultimate. And the ultimate is to take responsibility. And to have such clarity and to have such conviction of that, remember going back to the first trait, the five-finger clarity, to have such clarity that that is more important the taking the responsibility than the existential experience of, in, of sitting there with, in Hashem's presence to be able to get up and walk away even at the cost of losing that. It is only through that conviction that you can have the ability to stand in front of the creator of the universe and say, you can't do that. You follow that? There's no way a person would be able to say that if they didn't have that conviction. The conviction that I'm responsible for this world. That's my responsibility. And if God's coming to me to tell me that he's destroying two cities, it is only because it's my world also. It's only because I am in partnership with the creator of the universe. I own this world. And therefore, I have the ability, the responsibility, and the power to tell him no. And that's where we get the idea that the understanding that the, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a man, the seven traits of a man are how you become a man, but the definition of a man is right here. You have to take responsibility for the world. And you see that that's true. Every man takes responsibility for the world. The only difference is some people are very short-sighted and very narrow in what their world is. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the more somebody realizes that they have free will, the more responsibility they put on themselves, they place on themselves. Well, sure. For sure. If someone realizes that they're responsible just to start with their own life, free will means I'm responsible for my life. If I realize that I'm responsible for my life, then of course I'm going to take on that level of responsibility. Is that not what you were saying? No, it is. I'm just trying to think of people who are at different levels in regards to, I guess, taking a step back and really thinking about that idea of for sure, people personal that... power, personal free will about various aspects of life. For sure. Look, it, it is no accident that, uh, that the more the more we rely on outside assistance, the more we rely on government funding, social, uh, you know, socialized assistance for in, in whatever capacity, the less motivated a society becomes. And that's no, that, that's, that's for sure no accident. Because I'm not responsible. It doesn't matter what I do. The government will save me. The government will bail me out. It's, a, it's okay. I mean, a lot of what's going on in this, I don't want to get political, but certainly a lot of what's going on in this country is going to lead to a very unmotivated society. The more we rely on external assistance, the less motivated we are to take responsibility for ourselves because it's taking away our responsibility. Consequences. The essence of consequences. Responsibility means consequences. And that's certainly tied in with what's coming up next week, Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah means you're responsible. 
the definition of responsible is that there's consequences. That's what the definition of responsibility is. If you're responsible, that means that what happens is a result of what you do. That's consequences. That's what, that's, that, there's no other way to explain that. And if there are no consequences, if you're, you know, if you're not going to lose your home, if you're not going to get fired from your job, if you're not going to be forced to downsize, if everything remains the same regardless of what my decisions are, then there are no consequences and therefore I'm not responsible. And that is the antithesis of what this is saying. This is saying the exact opposite. I have the power to stop the world from being destroyed. Because it's my world. My world. I'm responsible for my world. If my world fails, I have no one to blame but myself. And yet we constantly throw blame everywhere we want. Everywhere we can. Because we don't want to be responsible. That's one of the greatest ironies of life. You know that. Everyone knows I love pointing out ironies. The, one of the greatest ironies of life is that we don't want responsibility when at the same time we yearn for it. It's one of the great ironies. And this goes all the way back to children, starting from the very earliest stages of life. Children want responsibility, but yet they don't want to deal with the responsibility i.e. they want to be independent, don't tell me what to do, I know how to do it, don't tell me how to live, I know what to choose, da, 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 da. But, but, but what? But they don't want to deal with the consequences. Right. <laughs> they don't want the control, but other responsibility right. comes with it. Right, but they don't... Well, the responsibility also gives you... Responsibility is consequences. What? It gives you a sense of significance. That's right, that's right, that's right. As, and, and that's where I was going to go with that. That started with children. As we get older, and we see this even more, this irony of responsibility versus consequences, we want there to be consequences. We yearn for it, but yet we don't want to deal with it. We don't want to deal with it. I.e., every single one of us yearns for there to be consequences, but yet we don't want to deal with it. How do I I'll prove this to you? You want to get an audience fired up and angry? You want to make your life meaningful? You got to take responsibility. That's how you deal with it. You embrace it. There are consequences. Consequences are a result of responsibility. That's what the definition of responsibility is. So the way you deal with that is embrace it. I'm responsible, but responsible for what? First and foremost, myself. I'm responsible for myself. Don't go through life blaming anybody else. Don't go through life, yeah, but it's this one, it's that one, it's my boss, it's my mom, it's my dad, it's my big brother. No, it's me. But that's only the beginning. That's small. Take responsibility for the world. That's big. That's being a man. That's what it means to be a man. Take responsibility for the world. And that's what Abraham did. And he had the conviction to know that that was his responsibility and that allowed him to do something that no human being ever thought that they could do. And what's that? Stand up to God and say, you can't do that. 
There's only one other person that does that after this. Moses. God says to Moses, I'm going to wipe the Jewish people out. Start over. We'll start with you, Moses. It's not working out too good. Let's start over. We'll start with you. And Moses says, no. can't do that. When was that? That was later. We're not going to get to that in this uh, series. <laughs> That's the understanding. That's what it means to be a man. To take responsibility, but take responsibility in a big way. To take responsibility for the world. Because that's pleasure. That's the greatest pleasure you could possibly have, is to take responsibility. And you see that. You see that that's true. What's the greatest pleasure people have? The greatest pleasure people have is always, always, in conjunction with the level of responsibility that they have for it. What's the greatest pleasure that your parents will have in this lifetime? You. Huh? You. Why? Because they're responsible for you. That's it. You see that. That means more to them than any vacation they ever took, than any dinner that they had, because they're responsible. That's responsibility. That's pleasure. The ultimate understanding of a Jewish man is take responsibility for the world. All right. Hope that was. There were seven traits of being a man. Yeah, there are seven traits of I being a man. I guess that one of them is taking responsibility. Well, no, one of them. One of them is not. That's the definition of being a man. So you start with the, the way it works is you have what does it mean to be a man? What it means to be a man is someone who takes responsibility. Now, what are the traits needed to do that? That's what the seven traits were. The definition of being a man is someone who takes responsibility. So one of the traits is not taking responsibility. That's, that is the definition. Okay. So the seven traits, just very quickly, for the sake of uh, Ram and for the sake of ourselves, the number one is five-finger clarity. To have total conviction that you know something to be right. That's five-finger clarity, to have conviction that what you're doing is right. That's, and that is the first step because, a very quick review, because the one thing that you will be constantly bombarded with in life is doubt. Your lives will be filled with doubt. And that, across the board, you'll doubt yourself. Other people will question you. Other people will tell you you can't do it. People will constantly try and put you down and hold you back from accomplishment. So you have to have five-finger clarity that this is true, this is right, this is my job. And you see that with Abraham. There's no way he could have stood up to God if he didn't have that five-finger clarity. Number two, yeah? The Einstein story was good. Yeah, Einstein story was good. Number two is from two through seven, you must have five-finger clarity on each of those. So number two is what? Realize that you have the ability to change the world and therefore you're responsible to do it. 
You have the ability and therefore you are responsible. Whatever it is. On the global scale, I'll just do it this one time through the seven as we do the review. On the global scale, you have the power to change the world, therefore you're responsible to do it, you're obligated to do it. But even on your own same limited scale, if you want to be small and you want to just take responsibility for your own world, you have the ability to change that world and therefore you're responsible. What's number three? Consequences. You have to live with the reality that there are consequences. There are consequences if you take responsibility, and there are consequences if you don't take responsibility. There are consequences. The definition of responsibility is that there are consequences. Right? Number four. Number four is... Number four is... Um, optimism. Number four is optimism. A person has to be optimistic that it will work. If a person is a naysayer, if a person is a pessimist, he will never change the world. Right? Optimists change the world, pessimists just complain about it. They tell you what's wrong with it, but they never do anything to change it. Number five, remember one number five? Yeah. Is, is optimism intrinsically associated with happiness? No. Number five is joy. <laughs> number five you have to be happy you have to see joy you have to take pleasure in the optimism you have to learn to take pleasure in the optimism because optimism is the vision joy is the energy to get there when a person is filled with joy you know what they do when they wake up in the morning they jump out of bed when a person is not filled with joy, you know what they do when they wake up in the morning? They go back to sleep. <laughs> I must be miserable. <laughs> they go back to sleep, even when they're out of bed. Even when they're out of bed, they go back to sleep. Number six, patience to persevere, to realize that it's not going to happen overnight, it's going to take time. You want to change the world, it's going to take time. You want to change your marriage, it's going to take time. You want to change your relationship with your friends, it takes time. You want to change your relationship with yourself, it takes time. Patience to persevere. Try again, try again, try again. And last week's class means try again, try again, try again, and what? Never quit. Never quit. And number seven is unity. Have to have the ability to get rid of the ego and to work with people and to be open to hearing people's ideas. That's what it takes to be a man. Now, speaking of never quit, I heard an interesting, uh, interesting statement once. There's no, or there's no such thing as failure because you always achieve in producing results. That's right. So, something to... Talmud says it beautifully that a righteous person falls seven times that by definition the only way to become a righteous person is to fail seven times that through the failure is what makes him a righteous person so there is no such thing as failure as long as you're earnestly trying right the non-righteous person fails once he doesn't get up those are the seven traits.
Right. What we're doing now is delving a little bit deeper into, like, showing the essence of one person that lived up to that. Abraham lived those seven traits. And these stories are trying to show that each one. I mean, in this story alone, we see that there are several aspects of those traits. Certainly the five-finger clarity. He, might, he had total conviction. Total conviction that this was right. Did you consciously make the choice to first talk about the traits and then go to the essence? No, the uh, the decision was you know, when I decided to teach the seven traits was uh, because Rabbi Weinberg was very sick, and uh, so I, I had taken upon myself uh, that I was only going to teach his classes as in his merit. Subsequently, he uh, he did pass away during that series, um, so I wanted to uh, I wanted to continue in that genre. That was that was the uh, decision. Thank you.